Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 20th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Yesterday evening, Gardaí investigating the killing of Ashling Murphy in Tullamore last Wednesday charged and cautioned a 31-year-old man, Joseph Puska, with Ashling's murder. That was at a quarter to eight. Puska then appeared before a special sitting of Tullamore District Court at 8.15. The scenes in Tullamore, as I'm sure you know, were dramatic. Hundreds of people gathered. The atmosphere was tense, if not aggressive. Really dramatic scenes, scenes uh, that I've not seen before except other than perhaps in a Hollywood movie. Let's go to Tullamore. Robert Fahey is a reporter with the local radio station Midlands 103. Good morning, Robert. Thanks for joining us. What happened so quickly that so many people were outside of the courthouse as uh, that special sitting got underway? Yeah, it was really amazing scenes. Like when I arrived at the courthouse about... I'd say half an hour just before uh, Mr. Puska arrived, there was about 30, 40 people that gathered across the road uh, from the courthouse. And it was amazing how quickly that number multiplied and multiplied. It was estimated in the end that roughly three or 400 people showed up. And the anger and fury that was coming from the crowd towards Mr. Puska as he was escorted into the courthouse was like nothing that I've ever seen before or experienced in my time reporting on different cases across courts all over this country. I mean, Mr. Pusk himself, as he came in, he was expressionless, motionless as he sat in the courtroom and as his charges were read to him by Gardaí investigating. It was, uh, you know, a very tense atmosphere. Like you mentioned in the courtroom, there was five members of the, the Murphy extended family there holding pictures of Ashing. They turned to face Mr. Puska throughout the short hearing that took place in Tullamore District Courts there last night. You could tell everyone in the room was, was hyper aware of the, the magnitude of what was happening about the escalating situation outside. Um, it was a short time was taken after the, the hearing took place to kind of formulate a plan for how to escort Mr. Puska out safely because by that stage the crowd that had gathered outside the gate had then moved all the way up to outside the court doors itself and it gathered all around the guard. A cordon was set up to escort him back out. 
but like you've alluded to, it was just really like on anything I've ever witnessed in Irish court. Was it simply that the word spread on social media? It was, yeah. It was just like the, uh, it was going up everywhere. Twitter, uh, Facebook, Snapchat, people were there taking videos. As I'm sure you're aware, the age of social media, things are all instant. And because of that and because of the passers-by were joining, people were abandoning their cars on the roadsides, on the footpaths, just to come up and to be a part of the, the growing crowd that was there. So it was really, truly amazing scenes. And like the, the videos and the, the audio don't even do it justice to the, the vitriol and the, and the fury that was coming. It was like a powder keg and Mr. Puska himself was the match that lit it on his way in. Was it intimidating? Very intimidating, I have to say, very intimidating. And just for, you know, there was kids there as young as seven that I saw right up to adults in their in their 50s and 60s. And there was the same emotion that was coming from everyone. You were shook coming out of the courtroom because as we entered the court, as I said, the people were still across the road. As we came back out of the court roughly five, ten minutes later, they had moved up like they were heckling uh, journalists, heckling Gardaí. It was a very, very, very intimidating atmosphere for everyone that was involved in the situation. The Gardaí seemed to have a, a very difficult job holding the crowd back. They did indeed. Like I said, they erected a court out, but there was a lot of pushing and shoving, jostling people, you know, hurling abuse in. There was around 30 or 40 Gardaí, I estimated to my eye, that were on duty there. That number grew as they realised that the situation was escalating. Another 20 or 30 arrived and tried to form a, a full cordon between the door and the van. But as you can see from the video footage that appeared online last night, it was such a rush. They had to really rush him out of the courtroom, rush him down into the back of the van. And as the van sped off, the door was still open. People chased the van, banging on the guard of the van. Uh, it paused as it tried to exit the court uh, building itself. People came up, banging on the side, shaking the van. It was really, really uh, an amazing situation that was unfolding before. There was plenty of video footage online. I don't know if I've ever seen as many phones in the air uh, since a U2 concert. Uh, There were a lot of people there. Social media was obviously a big player in all of this. And there was a a lot of anger, a lot of vitriol, as you say. Mr. Puska has been taken away. He's uh, taken uh, to uh, Cloverhill District Court, where he'll appear on the 26th of January for a special sitting uh, in relation to these charges. What happened? What happened afterwards uh, when he was driven away by Gardaí last night? Did the crowd disperse peacefully? They did. They did. They took time. Now, uh, I I live nearby, so I kind of lingered around and just to to gauge the emotion of the scene afterwards. And people were just in shock. There was people crying. There was people ringing loved ones. There was uh, people that had followed the the van down the street as well. People who were on the street waiting for it to come out, running down the road. There's There's a junction at the end of the road. People were still following at the edge of that. It was just the emotion of the, the town of Tullamore and the wider Offaly area over the last week all came out in that crowd there last night. You know, as, as everyone will be aware, yesterday was the one-week anniversary of the event itself. Uh, around 40 people locally walked the canal where the event took place to mark that moment. And it was just a, an outpouring of emotion like I, I've never witnessed anywhere else uh, in my time as a reporter. And like you said, the crowd dispersed peacefully eventually but there was just a, a lingering air of dismay about the place, even in the aftermath of it. OK, very dramatic scenes. Thanks for joining us from Tullamore this morning. Robert Fahey, news reporter with Midlands 103. Well, well, first of all, I think the government does acknowledge the contribution of, in particular, um, our healthcare workers, um, and indeed all workers across the economy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, they have faced many challenges uh, and have risen to the task, particularly in our health services and those care- caring for patients. Um, on the front line. I mean, there's been a, a number of waves now from the original one 
right through to uh, the alpha wave last January, uh, to Delta in particular, and then Omicron. Um, and time and time again, uh, th th those frontline services have been put under enormous pressures. So we have given very detailed consideration to them. And today the government approved a package of measures to recognise uh, these efforts. Um, and first of all, a public holiday will be held on the 18th of March this year. That's recognition of the efforts of the general public and all workers um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And then in remembrance of those also who lost their lives Thank during COVID-19. And then, that, so the public holiday broadly time. recognises everybody. And then you no, have no, a tax-free recognition payment of a thousand. Then, thank, thank you uh, for. Uh, no, no, I'm moving on. Sorry. That's uh, the Taoiseach uh, being cut off uh, by the last Kian Corley, but uh, I think uh, we got the gist. In fact, I'm sure everybody knows uh, what's uh, the government's intentions at uh, this stage: a one thousand euro tax-free payment to all healthcare workers. It appears as though it's still being determined as to who is a healthcare worker or who comes under uh, the criterion uh, for qualifying for this payment and an additional bank holiday which will be on the 18th of March and uh, then from uh, February of next year to celebrate St. Bridget's Day. Let's uh, talk to Rory O'Murakushin, Fane TD for Loud and East Mead and Fergus O'Dowd, Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead and uh, good morning to both of you and thanks for joining us. Of course we'll have NEFID meeting today and everything is very upbeat and optimistic and makes for a very pleasant change altogether, doesn't it, Fergus O'Dowd? Well, it's a big change. I think that the public have worked with the government and with the health authorities basically to make sure that so many people have been safe from, from this illness. Sadly, as we know, 9,000 people have died and millions of people have had their, their lives changed in, in radically in many, many ways. But please God, it is coming. We hope it's coming to the end of the Omicron, but that doesn't mean there won't be there won't be new new strains of COVID. So it's not over yet, Michael. It's not over at all. Okay. As I say, I don't think uh, the announcement about the thousand euro is over yet either. There's a lot of people knocking on government's door. Well I think I think the point is that restricting it to, to mask and gown people is very welcome initially when you think about it because they were the doctors, the nurses but clearly the porters, the cleaners, the workers in the hospitals, uh, they are now included in it, as I understand it, home carers. But we need to look at people who worked in pharmacies uh, and obviously GPs and their staff as well, because we've all been in doctor's surgeries and, you know, they, they work very, very hard. Uh, and particularly, I would say, I would like to see supermarket workers. They really, they really kept the food chain literally going. If they weren't, if they didn't go to work and they did go, uh, you know, we wouldn't have as many people wouldn't have survived the way that we were able to. Mm. And what about I the think, what, what about the people extend. what about the people who didn't go to work because they couldn't go to work and were out of pocket? Oh, of course, I understand that, Michael. But I'm talking about the people. I know. Who, yeah, no, no. The, we can we can add and subtract people, mm. and we all can do that. And I've thought about it a lot. But I do think the absolutely most important people. Were the people who worked in the front line? Okay, and, and what about the firemen and? and uh, yeah, I have no anybody anybody. The like Gardaí. Yeah, absolutely. I okay. Don't see why not? Yeah. All right, Rory Murku. Um, who else would you extend it to? Well, see, see at this point, I, I think it's fair to say we've all had a n numerous people who've contacted us around this game. There's obviously people who are looking for clarity. In, in, I suppose, the home care setting. Mm. There's the fear of certain people of there will be pro rata or ratio payments. So we, we need to find out how exactly 
all that's going to work out. Look, I think it's straightforward in relation to any um, trade union representative organisation for the sort of people you're talking about who basically were at the front line. You know, I, I think that government needs to listen to them and there needs to be engagement. That's straight out. I would also say we do welcome this payment. Uh, it probably was a long time coming. As I said, there needs to be clarity in relation to, as I say, some of the question marks. And, and I would say some of the selection will, will need to get moved. And I think family carers need to be introduced um, as, as a grouping within that. That's a grouping that would have lost out on... Um, on respite and you know have, there's mm. obviously considerable difficulties with that group and, and with others like I've mm. with home care with yourself before previously so so I think we need we need to make sure that those those people are are included and Fergus O'Dowd family carers do have a good case don't they because uh, the family carers are saying that they had to go into hospitals and elsewhere to bring their loved ones to appointments so they really were in the front line they didn't have any option well, I think the point is that everybody we're talking about, it's not it's not a, an exhausting list. You mm. know, it's 100 million we're spending at the moment. There's no reason why we shouldn't significantly increase that. Uh, but obviously, everybody can't get it. But I, I don't disagree with any of the mm. categories we're talking about. And I think, I, you think, look, we didn't know this was going to be announced toward anybody else, but that's the role of government. And the government has to listen, and, and I would expect that they will listen. Now, to the extent that can be extended, I don't know. Mm. But certainly I would agree with the extension to home carers. Absolutely, I would. Okay, and what about what about the TDs who had to go into the doll when uh, people were working from yep. home? Well, I think uh, we're well paid enough. Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, no, but, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you could go on forever. What about the pensioners well, who were cocooning, uh, who couldn't leave yeah, their homes? Of course. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I happen to know lots of people who were pensioners and who did cocoon, of course. And I suppose the issue is that that we all survived, everybody survived, that, you know, apart from the 9,000, sadly, who passed away. But I think the idea is that the additional new uh, holiday, uh, you know, will, will help us appreciate the sacrifices that people made, respect the lives that are lost and have a day of commemoration, I think, on the Sunday of the fourth day, I think, this year. Um, and and, and that, that is the way forward, you know, but I think, I think we can all hopefully put Omicron behind us, but it's not clear that we can. Um, and But I, I would like to see this extended, Michael, to other groups, certainly. OK, uh, this uh, payment of €1,000, uh, it's damned if you do and damned if you don't to some degree, Rory Muruku. Uh, do you think uh, that uh, the bank holiday, the extra holiday, will compensate for people who feel aggrieved? Well, here, people who feel aggrieved feel aggrieved. They will have multiple reasons. I, I suppose what I've already said is there needs to be further engagement. The other point I'm going to make is we all, uh, whatever we may, might have considered, the weaknesses that are in the health service that we have, while people did great work, did huge levels of work, we know that we don't have capacity, we know we don't have the ICU capacity. So that's the piece of work we need to look at. And like when we are talking about home carers, we know there's a huge issue up. There's an absolute lack of them at this point in time. I have engaged with the minister. I have engaged with other groups at this point in time because we need to improve the pay rate and we have to incentivize people to be able to work in that field. Now, the recognition payment is sound. I think it's absolutely sound that we are recognizing everyone in relation to, um, in relation to the day off. Um, look, this hasn't been easy on anybody and a huge amount of people have done the absolute right thing and some people have suffered serious, serious loss and tragedy. 
You know what I mean? Mm. That, that we've dealt with before on, on, on this show. Of course. We and really need to make sure we, we build for the future. And a lot of people are trying to look forward, uh, in particular in hospitality, in the entertainment industry and so on. There's great hope, I, I think. Uh, hopefully those hopes won't be dashed. Uh, if uh, the government is going to move, how soon do you think they should move? I think they should soon. Well, I, uh, I, I hope after the weekend. Um, I think the expectation is the numbers are really dropping, but there's still a significant number of people with, with the illness, and we should never forget that. But I, I, I would hope it will happen very, very quickly. The numbers are falling. It's time to relax the rules on the advice of Neffet. Mm. Uh, but we have to be prepared, Michael, if needs be, to change that policy if, to, if there's a new if there's a new virus. If Neffet come back tomorrow, uh, or today actually, uh, and say go for it, should the government come out tomorrow uh, and say open till midnight or whatever the decision is on Saturday night? I won't have a problem with whatever they recommend. Mm. I, mean, I think the expectation is, and I've no hotline more than anybody mm. else to them, uh, as, uh, as quickly as possible, but as safely as possible. I don't have a problem with the mask mandate mm. if it still is in public places. Well, if they're open till 8 o'clock, they won't find it difficult to keep going on until midnight uh, in terms well, of the practicalities no, of it. Uh, is that is that what you think uh, government should do? If they're going to do it, just do it, Murray or Murray could put that another way. That's straightforward as this. Like, we've, we've worked on the basis that we have to listen to the public health advice. Now, what we're hearing and what we think that the discussion is going to be is a lot more hopeful than what, what it has been. Like, Omicron, as transmissible as it was, we're all delighted in the sense of we didn't reach those critical numbers in ICU. Now, we still have a significant amount of people uh, in hospital who are sick at this point in time. The numbers... Uh, of people who've obviously caught uh, COVID in the last while are beginning to drop. We think this is the downslide. So we, we just need enough at information as soon as possible. And I suppose what the government have to do is lay out the clear roadmap. And yes, I don't think that everybody is fed up with um, the restrictions, particularly those working in hospitality. But just here, every one of us in, in trying to operate our lives in the way we used to just normally. So as soon as possible... I suppose we need to we need to uh, we, we need to here open up what we can. But again, I suppose what we need as soon as possible is just is that clear timeline. And I suppose it doesn't always help the fact that you're hearing um, the T-shirts and the tonics mm. uh, and, and others given little bits of information. And, and you know what I mean. People are half hearing it and. They just need that roadmap, and particularly those in mm. those businesses. It, it is a, it, it is a lot better, though, isn't it, than it, it had been in that uh, up to now we'd be arguing about should we uh, be closing down more than we are actually going to close down. We're talking now about opening up and how soon we're going to open up and who should get uh, this COVID bonus and so on. So I suppose uh, there's uh, some light at the end of uh, the tunnel as a result of all of that, and I'm sure everybody's delighted about that. We have to leave it there for the moment. Thank you both, though, for joining us on the programme today, Rory O'Muraku, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, and Fergus O'Dowd Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead. Michael Reed on LMFM. It really is bad with coronavirus. One minute you're up, the next you're down. One minute you're down, the next you're up. And it's all up, up, up at the moment, it seems. The Irish Sun today is reporting of a four-day party for St. Patrick's Day. Behind the door where my uncle should be. Come on! 
And that's the way it may turn out. Time will tell. We'll find out around uh, the 17th and 18th of uh, March, indeed, over that four-day weekend. Let's uh, talk to Adam Higgins, who's the political correspondent with the Irish Sun. A very good morning to you, Adam, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. It is very unusual, isn't it, uh, to be hearing such positive signals coming from government quarters. Yes, it is indeed, and it's great to be back on your show uh, with a bit of positivity to give your listeners, as opposed to the usual doom and gloom about this virus. Absolutely. So, uh, four-day weekend, that's been confirmed. Uh, the government has also announced uh, this €1,000 tax-free payment to healthcare workers. There's some people who are very happy about that, and some who aren't quite, obviously. Yes, this was always going to be a bit of a tricky one for the government to get over the line. So we know that they flagged this way back and the minute they flagged it, I'd say it was about uh, halfway through last year, straight away you had ministers coming out saying that, you know, this group should have it, that group should have it. We heard civil servants, we heard uh, Gardaí, that sort of thing. And Minister Michael McGrath, the public expenditure minister, the man with his hands on the purse strings, was asked that question directly yesterday. Look, there's going to be a lot of groups who say, why aren't we getting this? We continue to work on the front line, out and about, putting ourselves in danger during this pandemic, and now we're not getting anything. And the minister's response to that was that they tried and they talked about extending this to other different groups, but once they left the realm of healthcare workers and frontline healthcare workers, it got trickier to know when to stop. And so they said focusing solely on healthcare workers would be the fairest and simplest way and then they've given us this bank holiday weekend the extended weekend you mentioned at the top of the program mm. there on St. Patrick's Day uh, weekend they said that's a, a thank you for the rest of the nation for all the work they've done during the pandemic It seems though that they're going to revisit this uh, and listen to people who believe that they were at the front line as much as anybody else might have been yeah, so the, the Minister, uh, Minister Donnelly's department are in charge with putting this list together and what they said to us yesterday is that remarkably on the day they announced it, they haven't got a final list of who's on this and who's not. So what we do know is that it's, it's definitely we'll be getting it, it will be frontline healthcare workers who worked in hospitals. So you're talking about doctors, nurses, healthcare assistants, hospital cleaners, porters, ambulance staff, people who worked in the COVID swabbing centres as swabbers. And then you're also talking about nursing home staff as well. And that's importantly in the public nursing homes and also in the private nursing homes will be getting that as well. And then one other group that was definitely confirmed yesterday was student nurses. So we know that there was a lot of controversy about how student nurses who are supposed to be going to hospitals to learn were put on the front line during the pandemic because the hospitals were under so much pressure and they will also be getting this payment. What about paramedics? Yes, ambulance staff will be getting the payment as well. But one controversial one that won't be getting the payment, or it looks like they won't be getting the payment, is GPs and GP staff. So we know that GP offices and practices were open throughout the pandemic, some of them operating only by telephone because of the the situation with the virus. But regardless, they won't be getting the payment. Right, and not only were they on the front line dealing with patients and COVID patients and putting themselves in the firing line, if you like, but they're also giving invaluable advice and many of them became media commentators, something that they volunteered to do themselves. Yes, and, and despite that, they, they, it looks like they won't be getting this payment. Now, that all comes with the caveat that the Department of Health has yet to finalise this list. Mm. Um, Minister McGrath said yesterday that it looks like around about 100,000 people will be getting the payment, which will cost the state then 100 million, but I'd expect that that might creep up slightly as more groups are added into this. Could you see fire staff uh, being added into it, Gardaí being added into it? 
I think once you get outside the realm, as, as Minister McGrath said yesterday, once you get outside the realm of healthcare workers, it's difficult to know where the government would stop them because if they did include fire uh, rescue workers, which I mean have been going out and were, were used specifically for the COVID uh, measures tr- during the pandemic, and then you look at the Gardaí who were also used specifically to when it comes to enforcing those hated rules that we all had for so long, like it's you can 100% see their argument of why they shouldn't, why, why they should get this payment as well. Mm. But then once you, if you add it to them, I think the ball will keep rolling and you'll, and you'll likely find it difficult to stop. Okay. Uh, if uh, I was advising government, I'm not sure what I'd say about uh, the extra bank holiday this year. St. Patrick's Day can be a very drunken day, a riotous day, and a lot of people uh, get very upset about uh, some unruly scenes. If you have a second holiday and a four-day weekend, uh, maybe an idea for governments to keep their heads low after the St. Patrick's Day weekend this year. On the other hand, uh, people might be so delighted that you may be advising them to go to the polls and have a general election on the 22nd of March. (laughs) Well, isn't it been a long time since we've had an unruly weekend? Uh, I think it's been probably about two years, so we're due, and I think uh, the government get away with that one. So you'd go for the election on the 22nd? (laughs) (laughs) I think so, yeah. Although it depends on how they do on housing between now and then. (laughs) Okay, Adam, thank you very much. If we have an unruly weekend, we might forget about housing when we go out to vote, of course. Adam, thank you very much. Uh, much appreciated. Adam Higgins is the political correspondent for the Irish Sun. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. If you've ever had uh, your heart uh, jump out of its skin. Uh, because of a knee scooter passing you by as you walk innocently along a footpath. Imagine what it must be like if you're visually impaired. When you're on the footpath and there is knee scooters or brakes or anything else that comes on the footpath, it's the pedestrian is compromised. Um, similarly, with shared spaces like parks, um, these are places that are vastly important for us, hugely important for us, like um, places of socialisation to enjoy time together and that. And I really do feel that e-scooters shouldn't be allowed uh, in parks without restrictions. Um, we've had several incidents of near misses with them locally, and um, it, it, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. Um, just to kind of give you like a brief outline, like when we'd be walking with our assistance dog, like I don't know if you understand this, like but the dog is always going to look for the straight line, the route. So if you have people weaving in and out of their environment, um, crisscrossing them as we would be with scooters or bikes or anything like that, that's throwing the dog off constantly. So the dog is kind of having to recalibrate all the time then. Where am I going? Where am I in this position? And then you're working as a unit. So the dog has in mind like that there's two people attached here in our case. So the dog is, is... wondering where where are they in that space and in relation to this person that's weaving in and out on this on an e-scooter and again back to as well like what Leanne was saying the dog can't hear the e-scooter neither can I you know I can't see it either um, so it can be I've had e-scooters be right come zooming past right next to me right in front of the dog then and you're thrown completely 
That's Joanne Murphy. Uh, she was talking by video link uh, to the Oireachtas Committee on Transport yesterday, which heard from uh, the National Council of uh, the Blind in Ireland, the Irish Wheelchair Association and Irish Guide Dogs for the Blind. The three groups have come together uh, and made submissions on e-scooters. And we're joined now by June Tinsley, who's Head of Advocacy and Communications with the National Council for the Blind of Ireland. Good morning to you, June, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Interesting, uh, I think, uh, for those of us who aren't aware of uh, the difficulties uh, that the visually impaired live with on a daily basis, to hear what Joanne had to say. Uh, She went on to say, uh, I think, that the guide dog uh, stopped working uh, because of the upset after that incident with the e-scooter. These are very serious problems. Most of us are are concerned about e-scooters anyway, but when you have this additional difficulty, it's all the more serious. Good morning, Michael. Yes, and as you rightly say, uh, we presented to the Joint Rocks Committee yesterday and, and Joanne very clearly highlighted the impact it has on her when scooters are on the footpath um, because she can't see the e-scooter's approach and neither can her. Um, her dog is trained, obviously, to, to, to progress in one route. Um, so when the dog is kind of startled by e-scooters, it, the dog just literally remains stationary and does not know what to do next, um, which in turn um, makes the, the owner kind of be super cautious of, of what's happening because they feel very vulnerable. They don't know why the dog has stopped. So I suppose these very practical um, challenges were presented to, to the committee yesterday to highlight the fact that um, the NCBI, Irish Wheelchair Association and Irish Guide Dogs um, are really calling for th- this legislation to be very robust and to be very clear that there will be a ban on the use of e-scooters on footpaths. Mm. We know e-scooters are very, very popular and they're uh, increasing every day, but there certainly needs to be clear ground rules on their usage so that it doesn't compromise people's independence getting out and about safely. Is it legal to use them on footpaths at the moment? Because it's illegal to have them on the road, despite how many of them are on the road. But is it illegal, uh, as you understand it, June, for them to be used on footpaths? Uh, well, it's, it's a t- kind of a bit of a grey area at the minute because there's no clear legislation around this at all. Um, and I suppose that, that's the purpose of the presenting to the committee because there is draft legislation out now which implies that the e-scooters can be used on footpaths and we're kind of saying, no, that should not be the case. There should be an outright ban for usage on footpaths. Okay. Um, and that they also shouldn't be used on kind of, you know, those dual cycle and uh, and pathways. Mm. Um, because, again, from a, they can fly along at such a top speed, and that was another issue we were kind of flagging, that the, mm. the speed needs to be controlled more. Um, but it, it, they certainly pose a, a challenge, not only to people who are blind or vision impaired or wheelchair users, um, but other pedestrians too, out buggies or toddlers or... Mm. Um, Anybody, I suppose. So we just need to make sure that the footpaths remain safe. Yeah, you're saying the maximum speed should be 12 kilometres an hour uh, and reduced to 6 kilometres in certain places and never on footpaths. Uh, We heard uh, from Joanne there saying uh, not in parks. Uh, The problem is you can't hear them. None of us can hear them. uh, But uh, if you're visually impaired, you can't hear them and you can't see them. Correct. Yeah, that was one of our, our core issues that we were raising yesterday was the need to install um, a universal sound on each device, um, similar to what's going to be happening with the uh, e-vehicles e that are on many of our roads. Um, we, we need to make sure that there is a, a sound um, attached to 
e-scooters so that individuals can, can hear them approach. Mm. Um, it really is just in the interest of, of protecting people's safety on footpaths and to make sure that their independence to get out and about safely is not compromised. Okay, uh, and you made this case to the Minister, I think, before appearing in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee yesterday. Um, well, certainly in November, the three organisations kind of launched a, a joint policy position highlighting these challenges um, and we got an acknowledgement from the, the department on it but we have not met the minister directly on this issue and um, so one of the um, issues arising from yesterday's committee meeting was the, the need to meet with the minister and have a more fulsome discussion with the department on some of these issues so that when the legislation is um, commenced to law that it's as robust as possible and that it's very clear what the minimum safety requirements are um, for the benefit of the pedestrians, but also for the benefit of the riders and for the e-scooter companies that are going to be coming in and setting up um, shared schemes throughout different cities uh, across Ireland. Mm. So it's really, really important that the legislation is as um, unambiguous and robust as possible. I, I wonder if uh, there's any solution that will satisfy everybody. Uh, I, I mean, uh, quite often uh, these things are doing 25, 30 kilometres an hour. Those who use them don't want to go 12 kilometres. Uh, they'll be disappointed if that happens. Uh, you'll be disappointed if they're not made to go at that speed. Uh, if they're put off the footpaths and onto the roads, uh, motors will be upset uh, and there'll be further problems then because uh, they're not taxed or insured and they are motorised vehicles and so on. Uh, it's very difficult to see a, a solution that would satisfy everybody, as I say, June. Um, it, correct. I mean, we're literally talking about um, all all users of footpaths and roads um, and, and trying to, to reach a compromise here. But at the end of the day, we're kind of flagging it from the perspective of pedestrian safety. And um, from someone who's blind to vision impaired, it, it, it already takes a huge amount of confidence to get out and about safely um, because you're, you're trusting that the path that you're going on is clear. And as we've spoken before, often it's, it's not clear due to either outdoor furniture or um, freely bins left on the, the path or cars parked on the path. So there's already many obstacles that mm. someone who's blind or vision impaired has to face on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and this is just another one. And we can avoid this one by... Um, making it banned on footpaths and, and it is banned in many other countries on footpaths so mm. I suppose that there are lessons to be learned from other countries as well yeah, Well, uh, I mean <laughs> you're, you're talking about two different things uh, and one is going to knock the other down so it seems to be dangerous and seems sensible to ban one if it's a danger to the other uh, and if uh, you're suddenly frightened uh, if somebody takes the heart across you, as is quite often the case, whether you're visually impaired or not, when one of these things come up, especially because you can't hear them, uh, it can be very uh, discommoding. Uh, have there been arguments uh, that you're aware of? Has there been what, sorry? Arguments uh, between people who've yes. been frightened and uh, the e-scooter riders. Um, yes, and I suppose Joanne mentioned this yesterday at the committee, just... Um, it increases the level of kind of conflict between pedestrians then um, when incidences do occur. Uh, and I suppose, as I said, when you're blind or vision impaired, you kind of need a, a huge amount of confidence to get out and about safely. So putting yourself in a potentially conflictual situation um, can be uh, very, very challenging. And it, it has led to some situations where there's a, nearly a standoff between the, the rider and the pedestrian. Um, and the survey that we did found that about 75% of the, the sample who responded to our survey reported 
experiences of near misses or collisions on footpaths. Mm. Um, so this is an instance that's going to occur time and time again. Mm. Um, and as you rightly say, there is issues around insurance uh, to, to be resolved and licences and registration and all that kind of stuff that needs to be ironed mm. out as well. Yeah, I, I know myself, uh, I've come across people on bicycles, uh, electric bicycles, electric scooters uh, and otherwise uh, who feel that the footpath is there and they expect you to step out onto the road when you're walking so that they have a free path. Um, correct. And, and, and I suppose it's down to really um, driver and, or rider behaviour. Um, and I suppose one of the things we were also flagging is, is the need for more rider understanding of the needs of pedestrians, um, be they disabled or not, uh, to to basically walk in their shoes of what it must be like uh, to be on a footpath when, when suddenly an e-scooter zooms past uh, and to be mindful of that uh, and mm. for that awareness to influence their behaviour. Yeah, well, I find it bad. I can't imagine what it must be like if you're visually impaired or in a, a wheelchair. It's a problem and it is uh, undoubtedly a problem. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, June. As you say, the Oireachtas Committee is looking at it, uh, the Minister is looking at it, uh, legislation is uh, uh, on the way uh, and in time. Uh, hopefully there'll be a solution if it's possible to get a solution. But thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. June Tinsley is Head of Advocacy and Communications with the National Council for the Blind of Ireland, the NCBI. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Frank, who was on uh, the phone driving along West Street in uh, Drogheda. He said he took 10 minutes uh, to get from one end of uh, the street to the other. Uh, the progress is really slow because of a bin lorry. Uh, they're doing their collections. The traffic tailbacks are ridiculous. Why on earth are the bins being collected uh, on the main street of uh, the town at this time of the day? Why can't they be done when there's less traffic? Thanks uh, for that, Frank. Uh, somebody in touch about e-scooters uh, saying uh, they should never be allowed on footpaths. It's like allowing motorbikes uh, onto a footpath. This is Clare in County Mead who says, you don't see electric bicycles on footpaths. Uh, sorry Claire but I see electric bicycles on footpaths every single day Uh, she says uh, they should also be insured well they should be on the road and if they're on the road and they're electric uh, well then they should be uh, uh, insured uh, the e-scooters at least Uh, if they have pedals it's a different thing Uh, Margaret says uh, what about uh, the thousand euro is that going to be given to all healthcare workers including those who didn't get vaccinated Uh, somebody else saying that's a, a month's wages for anyone who lost their job and are on pop at the moment through no fault of their own. Typically, more money for public sector employees. And another texter asking, what about the bin men? Uh, some might say, what about them? Uh, but it's a question and a uh the type of question I think that will be asked over the coming days but thank you if you have been in touch with us today. Now let's talk about tips. If you tip when you go to a restaurant or a pub or such like, where does your money go? Well that's a, a question uh, that has long been asked. Uh, the government is promising tips legislation and the United Trade Union met with the Taunashe to discuss what is being proposed. Let's hear from Unite now. Julia Marciniak is uh, the hospitality coordinator for Unite and a very good morning to you Julia and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You've a a lot of concerns about what happens with tips and I'm sure you've a lot of ideas about how it should be regulated. Hi, thank you for for having me and giving me a voice um, about this um, situation. 
So, um, yes, like we all know um, where the customer intent they tip to go. And we know that that intention is clearly not for uh, business owners. It's uh, intended to be given to staff. Unfortunately, that is not um, always the case. And there is a significant uh, evidence from um, uh, United Research from June uh, 2021, then unfortunately this money intended for workers often uh, and in pockets of employers. So cash tips uh, um, reach around 40% of workers uh, receive all their cash tips. Then we have uh, 21% from credit card tips uh, reached us, the workers, and only um, less than 8% uh, the money from service charges right. goes, to, goes so, to workers. So, in other words, 60% of cash tips doesn't go to workers. Uh, around 80% of um, credit card tips doesn't go to workers. Uh, and 92% of service charges doesn't go to workers. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Unfortunately, there are some bad employers each, each hold, hold to that money. That's why this legislation now is so important, especially then we're talking here about low-paid workers um, who often do not have a full-time hours contract and um, and they really need that money to mm. supplement their everyday um, yeah. expenses. I know, but if you bring on employers, if you speak to employers and you say, why do you pay your staff so uh, low uh, a salary? Uh, they'll tell you, well, they get tips. But they don't, obviously. Uh, exactly. And I think that the employers still should pay uh, people decent wages uh, uh, tips are just a bonus uh, from mm. from thankful customers, but if it comes to legislation, we have uh, several concerns uh, about the original draft. It was it was released in the end of um, 2021, mm-hmm. and we seek the appointment with Tonashta. Each uh, we are so grateful um, uh, took place um, uh, this Monday. So um, um, we are happy then then Tonashta and this government to recognize the problem and the need of regulation. Um, but um, because of the first draft uh, of the of the uh, upcoming bill, uh, there is um, a lot of concerns around how service charges are defined. Yeah. So at the moment, service charges are defined as. Um, Basically, they have a status exactly the same as, as uh, income for the restaurant. So the business owner legally, according to, to the first draft, could uh, um, use that money for whatever uh, expenses they wish to That's use them. not fair, is it? Uh, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of people, I don't know uh, what you think yourself, Julia, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, but I, I think it's true to say that there's a lot of people will go into a restaurant and they don't tip if there's a service charge because they think that the tip is included in the price. Exactly, and this is simply a fraud. It's a fraud for uh, if it comes to to the point of the customer, each uh, believing then that uh, it might be misled to believe then um, then that money going to go to staff on the top of the contractual wages. And as well, it's an unfair competition because some uh, businesses just pushing up the price uh, this way uh, compared to others which do not uh, implement service charges and as well others who pass the tips from the workers. 
So it's not only unfair for a worker and a customer, but as well, it's unfair for those businesses which doing right thing and passing that money to, to their employees as, as intended. Mm. Um, there so, is as well. So just explain to me what happens if I go into a restaurant and at the end of the meal, I leave cash on the table. If it doesn't go to the waiter or the waiter and the chef and the dishwasher, and the barman, because quite often some places split the tips. If it's not split between the staff or doesn't go to the waiter, how does it end up in the pocket of the employer? Because I've given cash to the waiter. Uh, like often, um, the staff it's um, it's told to put uh, that money to a tip jar, and uh, once the tip jar is full, the worker do not longer have a control of how that money is shared. So, so they don't know how, they don't know how much is in the tip jar, is it? They do not know how much is in the tip jar, and then in the end of the shift, somebody on, in a position of power, sometimes it's, that is uh, owner himself, sometimes mm. it's a uh, manager, take that tip jar away, calculate, mm. uh, count the money, and the money is divided. But uh, unfortunately, from many experience, it just doesn't reflect the, the money created because clearly the workers can... Um, see how much money they were putting in mm. and suddenly they are end up with a fracture and uh, often mm. uh, back of the house do not get any money and um, there is as well evidence of some businesses uh, um, uh, some businesses uh, some business owners just taking just require a manager to put a half of the tips for the owner himself on the site. Mm. So I think it's very it, it, it's very important that the worker themselves can calculate that money and share among the uh, among themselves and uh, to, to begin with okay. now how much money was there in to, yeah. to, to start. Mm. Well, you know, there's a, a problem uh, telling people this because people might say, well, look, I'm not going to tip at all. Uh, so where's the solution? Uh, if people, because people, I think generally people do tip, do they? Uh, yes, they yeah. do. There is actually quite a yeah. good uh, mm. tipping culture in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and people do that because they're aware that the staff are, are, are on low pay and they think, well, look, you know, uh, as part of uh, the expense of going out, it includes uh, a tip in it. Uh, and um, they may not want to do that if it's not going to the staff. But how, how can people feel sure that it is going to the staff? Uh, and this is where this legislation comes in. What have you said to the Tonsha? Uh, what should be done by law to make sure that the money goes where people intended to go, directly to the people who have served them and made their food? Uh, like, uh, first of all, it's all about the legal right to uh, to, to tips. So then if the employee have a right to, to, to tips, they can bring the, the case to WRC and challenge the employer if they believe then that money is not passed on. Uh, and obviously the money from credit card tips would be very easily to, uh, traceable. And with cash tips might be a little bit more difficult, but still the employees could challenge if they get the legal right in the legislation. They could challenge the employer in court um, to uh, uh, to get the right mm. uh, uh, to, to their tips. But at the moment, if the employer going to take credit card tips or cash tips or service charges, there is no legislation which gives the worker a right to bring the case to WRC. 
So unfortunately, like without that legislation being strong and 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 give a hundred percent right for the worker to be in control of the tips and to receive those tips, nothing gonna change in that regard. Okay. All right, well, let's hope that uh, there is change because I, I know people don't tip so that they can uh, pay more for uh, their meal or whatever the service is. They pay so that uh, it helps uh, to boost uh, the low pay that workers are on. Julia, thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Julia, Marciniak, is it? Marciniak, yes. <laughs> Marciniak, Marciniak. Julia Marciniak. Lovely name. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Julia is uh, the hospitality coordinator with the Unite Trade Union. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's quite possible the government will announce the easing of restrictions as soon as tomorrow. It will follow advice which comes from Neffet, who meets today or which meets today. And uh, let's talk uh, in advance of that meeting and indeed what recommendations Neffet may make to government with Professor Jack Lambert, who's Professor of Medicine and a consultant in infectious diseases at the UCD School of medicine. Good morning to you Jack thanks uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. We're told to be optimistic all the signs are positive uh, is that correct? Is that your uh, perception of things as uh, we speak this morning? Yeah, well, Absolutely. My, my perception is this new this new variant Omicron is, is, is a game changer in terms of our whole strategy uh, for living safely with Covid you know it's much more infectious but it's much less dangerous um, and, you know, we need to get on with things. That means opening up hospitality, rethinking vaccine passports, um, you know, re- rethinking a-, a lot of things in terms of our COVID strategy. Um, and, and, and we need to kind of move on and, and kind of accept that COVID's going to be around for a while and learn to live safely with it. And learn to live safely with it if you get it. Does it matter if you get it, if it's... Uh as uh, severe or less severe as uh, Omicron has proven to be? Well, see, see it's, it's not that simple. It's like, yes, yes, it's, it's 10 times less or it's 80% less, um, you know, kind of pathological. It's causing much less damage than the first variants that we saw two years ago. But if you're immunocompromised, you know, even, even, even something like Omicron, if you're not vaccinated or you've lost your vaccination antibody or you never developed an antibody, it still can cause serious illness. So I still think we just shouldn't say, you know, let's not vaccinate anybody, let's throw away masks, let's throw away hand washing, you know, let's throw, you know, care to the wind. We still need to kind of, you know, take care. Um, but we shouldn't, we, we, we shouldn't use our previous strategy, which is, scaring people with numbers, you know, threatening, you know, that, that, that the hospitals can't cope. We're in a different situation than we were in the first wave and second wave and third wave. So as you look at the situation and uh, the threat to us from coronavirus uh, as we speak, you'd be saying, let's get back to normal, open up the pubs and restaurants, nightclubs and so on, but use a bit of common sense and yeah. follow the yeah, basics. Absolutely. Like I said, if I, if I went to if I went to a restaurant, I would I would, you know, and for example, you know, I would be in a place for where it was safe. Um, I don't want to catch, you know, you know, Omnicom, um, even though I've been vaccinated. Now, now, if I got sick, it would just be kind of the common cold. I wouldn't die from it. But I, I might be able to work from a week or two. That has impacts on me. That has imp- 
impacts on my family, that has impacts on the hospital because I've been lost to work. So if I was in a, a restaurant, I would, you know, make sure I wear my mask when I'm walking around, make sure I'm wearing a mask when I'm, you know, going to the toilet where I'm congregating with a whole bunch of other people, wash my hands religiously. Um, you know, it doesn't say th- all the other COVID mitigation strategies, you know, vaccines don't prevent you from being infectious, but they do prevent you from getting you know, sick and ending up in the ICU. The thing that prevents you from being infected is hand washing and masks. So we shouldn't throw that away. Okay. Um, Would you advise people to get vaccinated if they haven't been vaccinated? I think so. I think so. I I just think that what depends upon the population, I think we're going to have to rethink that as well. You know, so I think that, that at one time I was concerned about younger people, you know, getting the getting the delta variant and ended up with cardiac disease you know that's a rare complication in young young adults and and children but omicron doesn't seem to be causing that so i think there's we're going to have less of an emphasis on you know vaccinating the whole population and we really should enhance the you know emphasis on vaccinating older populations risk populations boosting people who are, are at higher risk um, because we don't want them to catch the Omicron. They, there, there still are cases of people ending up very sick, but it's 90% less than, you know, than, than the Delta. So it's a good news story. There's some people listening to us uh, who gave up living as such uh, in March of 2020 and really haven't been outside of uh, the door or who have done very little and continue to be cautious uh, in the extreme. What would you say to them, Professor Lambert? Well, you know, I think there's been so much scare tactics out there, you know, in terms of, you know, that this whole sky is falling, the numbers are up, hospitals can't cope, you know, you're going to end up in the ICU intubated. If you do all the right things, get your vaccination and be very careful, you know, I think I think you just need to kind of get on with life and, and you know, we, we need to get rid of all this anxiety, all this worry. Treat this more like flu. You know, with mm. in flu season, you cover your, your, your face. You're, you're not going to let people cough on you. You get your vaccine every year. We need to kind of put this in line with flu. Um, I think it's more serious than flu. But but, but like I said, I think we, 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 we can't use lockdown and fear and, you know, cocooning in, a, in, in your, your household because there's consequences to that. There's psychological consequences. Mm. And people are not going to medical appointments. People are losing their businesses, this and that. Mm. We need to get back to the new normal and treating okay. COVID more like flu. Okay, but getting flu can be very serious, uh, as I suppose. Uh, no, I'm not disagreeing, but that's, yeah. that's why you get a vaccine. That's why yeah. you wear a mask. Mm. I wear a mask in flu season. I wear a mask in the sure. hospital. Mm. Um, you know, if I was, if I go into, if I go into an enclosed uh, facility, you know, I could catch flu. I could catch COVID. Mm. I could catch RSV. There's a whole bunch of respiratory viruses. We need to continue that okay. um, mm. moving forward. Okay, uh, but uh, if somebody in the house has the flu, what do you do? Or in this case, if they have Omicron, if uh, they have coronavirus, uh, because quite often uh, people are uh, reporting uh, symptoms, uh, whether they're antigen uh, positive or uh, getting a PCR test uh, or or not getting tested at all. There is that continuous risk. And there are people undoubtedly who are close contacts uh, who are out and about in the community. Uh, Do you feel safe around everybody? Um, th- that is, I mean, there's, there's that whole issue is are people, you know, are people taking personal responsibility, people who are sick with a respiratory illness, are they not going into shops? Are they not going to work? I mean, I think, I, I think we, we can't be paranoid and say, oh, other people are not following the rules. We could catch this infection. You know, we didn't have this kind of strategy, you know, five years ago when we had flu pandemics. 
I think we need to just kind of reset the whole strategy. We were in crisis two years ago. People were dying left and right. We didn't have a vaccine. We didn't understand this virus. We understand it now. So let's learn our lessons and put this in line with flu and take it seriously, but don't don't let it, uh, you know, control our lives. Okay. Uh, And uh, if you take advantage of this freedom uh, that is available to you now, is it a window of opportunity? Is it a window that may close in time to come because of a new variant, do you think? You know, that's always a theoretical possibility. But my personal belief in terms of understanding viruses, this is an animal virus. It's mutating to be less virulent and more infectious, you know, and it likes that because it can it can infect more people and it won't kill off those people and they will propagate. So I think it's survival of the fittest. I think the virus is going to continue to be a more infectious, less dangerous version but but none of us you know none of us are are crystal ballers you know we'll have to wait and see but my scientific understanding of viruses is that i don't think it's going to all of a sudden mutate to become more virulent we're not going to develop another delta virulent strain um so so let's pray and hope that the science is right Mm, and that uh, perhaps we learn from history uh, because uh, a lot of people have been comparing this uh, to the russian flu of uh, the 1890s so I think I think that's I mean I'm basing my opinion based on you know a pre- previous viruses and and my understanding of this is an animal virus it's not supposed to like being in humans it's supposed to die out with time because it prefers to be in animals rather than humans so I, I think it's going to continue to be very infectious less lethal um, and we need to get on with our lives. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it really is. I think there's a lot of people delighted listening to you this morning. Thank you very, very much for joining us uh, with that great news. Uh, that's Professor Jack Lambert, who's a professor of medicine and a consultant in infectious diseases at UCD's School of Medicine. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Tony Trim says he can't wait uh, for the end of the lockdowns, getting back uh, to normal working hours, return to hospitality, but he does have a few concerns about the two bank holidays back-to-back. Shabadoo! He thinks it'll be an orgy of over-drinking and the levels of uh, people mixing will be unreal at that. John, in touch with us about the €1,000 bonus, uh, asking uh, should uh, prison service uh, workers who are on the front line not get the bonus as well? Paul Androhada says uh, that the €1,000 is doomed to fail. He's listened to the conversation with the TDs on the show. He says uh, he hasn't changed, uh, they didn't change his mind. One of the main problems with the scheme is uh, the term frontline workers. This can cover a multitude of jobs and functions, so how do we decide who qualifies and who doesn't? Also, most frontline workers never lost their income during the pandemic and although the bonus is deserved it's a no-win situation for the government it'll, it'll cause division he says a listener in touch to say they've seen people on scooters with no helmets they've no lights they've no bells they've no high-vis jackets they've headphones on and on occasion they've two or three people on the scooter this listener is a cyclist themselves and they have to have lights front and back on their bike flashing armbands and they wear a helmet at all, all times Mary says scooters should not be allowed on the roads or the footpaths at all kids are weaving in and out of traffic at speed on these machines. It's deadly. John agrees 100% with June Tinsley of the NCBI. Something has to be done to tackle the dangers posed by e-scooters. He nearly crashed into three youngsters on scooters as they had no lights or high-vis gear on. The guards need to be doing more to tackle this scourge. He says, the guards are ignoring it, John. There's no doubt about it. The guards are ignoring it or else they're not out on the streets because everybody sees them. Nobody ever hears of the scooters uh, being confiscated or anything like that. Anyway, 
Anyway, uh, we're going to uh, listen to some statements from the doll. Uh, this might be of interest to some of uh, the women listening to us. Uh, it might be uh, harder for men to listen to, but probably more important if the men did take some time to listen to what some of the women in the doll were saying yesterday about violence against women. You do spare rev imbutina dala in you, ni mordun, Ashling Murphy, a horch conquivna, a kalu, oxifur boss, shocked to know him, Kotrajo, Tregojok, Agus, um, ni mordun, or covron, a karanul, than clan, than a tishmahori, a drehor, a drifur, Agus, and pobble log, Suvnish shiri, da anam jilish. Today, before we start, I think it's important to remember the late Ashley Murphy, and we acknowledge the devastation caused to her family, her friends, and the community by Ashling's tragic and untimely and premature death. We remember the joy Ashley brought to people's lives, and we extend our deepest condolences to all who knew her. The fact is that violence and emotional abuse against women is systemic. Yes, women are afraid, not of our surroundings or the time of the day or night. We are afraid of violent, abusive men. Men who target women in our own homes, on the street, in our workplaces, on the bus, in the pub. Women are afraid because our lives may be on the line. Hundreds of women in Ireland have died violently. Hundreds of lives cut short in the most devastating way. And last Wednesday, Ashling Murphy sadly added to that toll. A young woman of 23, attacked by a man while out for a run in broad daylight in a public space. And yet, violence still found her. This is why women and girls have been afraid forever. The truth is that women have the right to be safe, no matter what we're doing, no matter where we're, we are. We've the right to be safe on the bus after work or on a night out partying. We've a right to be safe in the shopping centre or walking home having spent the night with friends. We've the right to be safe working out in the gym, in our workplaces and in our own homes. How and where we choose to live our lives or spend our time or how we decide to dress is irrelevant. The length of our skirt or how we wear a top is not an invitation to grope us. Women, women having fun in a nightclub is not a signal to rape us. Walking or jogging alone by ourselves is not a green light to murder us. And yet... The warped and twisted logic of misogyny conjures up this notion that a woman is asking for it. Asking for what exactly? To have our lives shattered? To be traumatised? To die? What we are asking for, and indeed what we demand, is that men stop inflicting awful violence on us. It's 3am, I'm in my bed, alone. The phone rings. I shake off the sleep and answer. A man's voice, violent and determined. We know where you are. You need to back off the lines. 
we will get you. My voice catches in my throat. I can't breathe. I say nothing. Are you hearing me? We will get you. Then silence. Just me, on my own, and the darkness. Safety robbed, security violated. Should I wake my children? Are we safe? Will the guards take a phone call seriously? Not all men. But all women will identify with the feelings that come from following these encounters. Not all men, but all women, will know them well because they are not rare. Not all men, but all women grow up knowing we are not safe. Not all men, but all women will learn to text your friends when we arrive home safely, because for us, it is not a giving that we will. Not all men, but all women know the feeling that creeps up your back when you're, your steps behind you and you have to check. Not all men, but all women stay away from the darkness between streetlights, sprinting from one bright spot to the next, hoping to be okay. Not all men, but all women look for the parking space with CCTV cameras facing them, knowing that unlocking and locking and getting into their cars is one of the most vulnerable actions. Not all men, but all women take the long way back, no shortcuts or alleyways. And not all men, uh, but all women, know to keep their keys between their fingers, ready to defend ourselves. This is the fight of our lives, and it's exhausting. Not all men, but all women, watched Ashley Murphy's story play out and felt. There is no reason that one day it might not be me on the news. We shouldn't keep having to tell our stories. We are sick and tired of telling our stories. We are sick and tired of taking that which happened to us and putting it into the public sphere and nearly begging for allies, for politicians to listen, for, for men to understand. We're just fed up with it. And, and that's one thing I have noticed in the last week. It's not that women are angry, but Jesus, yes, we're angry, but they're fed up, just really fed up. I talked to my mother, we are fed up at this stage and we are fit to say enough is enough, but we know who we've said enough is enough too many times before. And the tragic killing of Ashling Murphy has sparked a national debate. From Belfast to Ballancolic and everywhere in between, we have seen women and men gather together and silently reflect on the loss of Ashling, on the loss of all women lost to violence. And the fact that many of us experience a very real fear on a daily basis. Kiancorla, I like to run. I'm not very good at it, can't run very far, can't run very fast, but I do like to run. And when I go out, I am always careful, always careful, because I try, as a woman approaching 50 years of age, I try to not bring it on myself. Imagine that, before I leave the house, and I've spoken to my husband about this. This comes as a revelation. I noted good and decent men. This comes as an absolute revelation. But I check myself before I go. And I think, what am I doing to bring this on myself? That, that shouldn't happen. That's not personal to me. That's, ev that's every woman before we go out. What are we wearing? Where are we going? Who's going to be there? How am I getting there? How am I getting home? All the time asking ourselves these questions, all the time with that little, and it's been spoken about here, that little mental checklist. Who's going to be there? Is it going to be safe? Is there anyone coming home in the taxi with me? 
I wonder, can I persuade my husband to stay up and drive into town and bring me home? Carl, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm a grown woman. Right? I am not a child. But I am afraid of being in the dark on my own or with someone behind me. And th that's, just, that's just not acceptable. So and so I face the wall, turn my back against it all. How I wish I'd been unborn, wish I wasn't living. Annie Lennox sang these four short and yet immeasurably powerful lines to perfectly encompass the grief of victims of sexual and violent assaults. And while it is true that some men might be able to understand the issues facing women, there is not one man among us who will physically feel the same shame, the guilt, the anxiety, and even the sheer worthlessness that we may are made to feel at times. And I know what it is like to say no, but for it to fall on deaf ears. I know what it is like to be made to feel inferior. I know what it is like to feel like prey. We are the hunted, conditioned for decades to change our route home, to text when safely home, to text when in the taxi, to, to not walk alone in the dark and to dress appropriately so as not to attract unwanted attention. And this has to stop. Women did not create this culture. It therefore follows that the emphasis should not fall on women alone to solve it. It falls to each and every one of us in this house and not just those of us who have been shouting the loudest, not just those of us who still believe that there are some misogynistic articles to amend within our constitution, not just those of us who have repeatedly called for our family court system to be upgraded and for our criminal justice system to be improved as well as having more robust legislation around sentencing. And not just those of us who demanded that this House establish a special Oireachtas Committee on Gender Equality. Not just those of us who worked to support Safe Ireland and Airbnb in providing emergency refuge spaces to women escaping instances of domestic violence at the height of the pandemic. And not just those of us who regularly participate around meeting tables or speaking chambers with men, men and more men. We know full well what being in a minority is like and to wear that invisible brooch of inequality every single day. I don't just understand the concept of inequality and discrimination. I live it every single day, along with every other woman <coughs> in this house. So make no mistake, I am seething. I am not prepared to sit on my hands and listen to words. As a female public representative, I can call for increased action. But as a woman, however, I am demanding it. There is too much at stake. We have reached a tipping point and it is long past time. Uh, and I think of my almost nine-month-old son and I'm sure like most people, I think about what he'll look like when he gets older, what work he'll do, whether he'll have a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whether he'll get married, have children, all of these things. But in the last week, I've, I've, I've promised myself that no matter what he is or who he is, that he will respect women, that he will call out these types of inequalities and that he will stand up where he sees this type of behaviour in the future and I think we all have to do that and it's also about the national campaigns it's about making sure these conversations are constantly on the airways in our papers through our social media channels and elsewhere it's about making sure that everything that we do is backed up by evidence by real lived experience by making sure that we gather that information and that we make sure that it improves our laws improves our policies and improves the experience for victims and for survivors many people have mentioned the Savvy report and just I want to reassure people there's no delay here. It's not that it's not being resourced or that it's not being prioritised. From the very outset, I think it was made clear that it was going to take time. Five years was the time frame that was given um, back in 2018 when it was started. You're gathering a lot of 
detailed information, a lot of very sensitive information. Um, there have been consultations. There needs to be multiple consultations to look at how, over time, things change. And I think of even when I was in the Department of Health and the Longitudinal Ageing Study, which was carried out by Professor Roseanne Kenny, that took 10 years. Now, obviously, a slightly different type of survey, but I think these types of data gathering, they do take time. But just to reassure people, it is on time and it will be delivered by next year, uh, as we had set out. So... There's a lot of work to do. Um, I, I think we all appreciate that, but I think it's very clear um, from all of our contributions, we are all on the same page. We all want to achieve the same thing, that is zero tolerance of any kind of violence or abuse against women. Uh, and I really look forward to working with colleagues to make sure that we can reach that end goal. Uh, again, I just want to offer my deep, deepest uh, condolences, not just to the Murphy family, but to all families uh, who are impacted by um, violence, um, those who are going through any type of abuse, um, to, to acknowledge them and obviously to say that everything that we do, uh, we do thinking of them at all times. Thank you. The women you've been listening to speaking in uh, that dull debate yesterday were Catherine Connolly, the last Kim Corley, Mary Lee MacDonald, TD, Minister Anne Rabbit, Louise O'Reilly, TD, Minister Josepha Madigan and Minister Helen McEntee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, you might tell me you'd never drink and drive. At least I hope you'd t- tell me that you'd never drink and drive. But would you go out for a drink tonight and drive tomorrow morning? Uh, that's one thing. But would you drive tomorrow morning if you thought there was any chance that you might have been over the limit? Well, apparently one in ten motorists would, according to a survey from AA Ireland. That's a survey of nearly five and a half thousand motorists. Paddy Cummin of AA joins us now. Good morning, Paddy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Morning, Michael. Morning. Uh, it's something, I, I suppose, uh, that people have thought about, uh, and it's difficult to know uh, whether the alcohol is still in your system or not. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of people who are concerned that that was the case but they took the chance anyway Yeah, I mean look obviously with a survey like this you have to imagine that you know we wouldn't call any of our customers dishonest but you have to imagine that uh, in some cases people might not be willing to admit the truth in this. So, the, so the number could actually be quite a little bit more but re- really what, what did happen in the survey now obviously someone can't uh, know for sure unless they breathalyse themselves but you know we asked them did they um, drive believing that they were over the um, over the limit which um, which obviously one in ten have, have admitted to doing so um, yeah look it, it is a, it is a problem it, it, it's a problem I suppose with attitudes and um, you know things Michael have got an awful lot better in Ireland in terms of of drink driving you know that looking at um, I was looking at some old figures and mm-hmm. uh, you know things have got a, a huge amount better like even over the last year um, there were uh, five and a half about 5,400 arrests this year for it and that you know there was there was over 8,000 in 2020 so the, the numbers are coming down but I think we're probably not there yet and the limits have come down dramatically I mean you talk about the old days I think it used to be five will do uh, was uh, the campaign five pints would do <laughs> I was reading an old Oroccus report this yeah. morning mm. and the, the, the original um drink driving legislation in the 30s uh, said and I quote um, not driving while drunk um, but and, and but then when it did change in the 60s it was 125 milligrams so it's about two and a half times what it is now right okay uh, which is what about five or six pints <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, of the original one well no they, at, at the moment it's 
um, it, it's it's quite a bit less. You know, you right. would, okay. this is the issue where people would have run into difficulty, especially the next morning. Mm. If you, you know, for for most people, if they go out and have a drink as is uh, qualified, that that takes an hour for your body to process that. Now, a drink isn't a pint, a drink no. is half a pint. Mm. And that's where it gets confusing. So for every pint you have, you need two hours for two hours. to get out of your system. Yeah, and, mm. and your and the, your blood alcohol can continue to rise for up to three hours after you've finished your last drink as right. well. So, okay, so if um, you've had five pints, the maths isn't that difficult, that's ten hours. Yeah, and, and you know, what we're seeing as well... Um, you know, from the survey is is that people as well have are, are are jumping into cars with people who they might be a little bit suspect about. You know, they, we've seen that three percent have travelled with someone who they believe might be over the limit, or sixteen percent have travelled with someone who they're not sure is uh, over the limit, and that's um, that's worrying as well because you, you know to, to get in, into a car with someone who's um, who, who's in that potentially, you know, slightly over the limit condition is very dangerous. Okay. Uh, and you've been asking people what should be done about it uh, and if uh, there should be a register which would name and shame. Yeah, the, the RSA have proposed this um, about, a, a, as you say, a, a list, really, a name and shame for those who are convicted. Um, 42% were strongly in support of that uh, list. 34%, you know, agreed with it, but there were some detractors, 19% that said no, and 5% said definitely no. But what did come out of it was, I suppose, that people um, who, you know, there are a huge percentage of people who say, look, it wouldn't detract me because I don't, I wouldn't do it anyway, but there has been a percentage, you know, a strong percentage of people who say, yes, it would, it would influence me. Um, so, so, look, mm. uh, you know, I think I think this is a, it would be a positive step, if anything, that would detract people there is, of course, the argument that you could have a zero um, tolerance limit. There are countries with lower limits than ours. You know, we are, you know, we're 50 milligrams. Know, countries yeah. countries like Estonia, Poland, Sweden are, are, are 20 milligrams and there's other countries. Oh, right. Um, okay. yeah. who but, are, but you who get into all kinds tolerance. of problems then, don't you? Like, uh, I mean, medication uh, can have some alcohol in it and people may not realise it or, you know, the sherry trifle argument or that sort of thing. Yeah, although you know they are negligible amounts. There, there was. I remember doing a story a long time ago, and, and um, that showed that if you had taken mouthwash uh, at home and were breathalysed right outside your house, that you mm. you could you could in theory um, come over the limit. But oh, you'd be um, skyrocketing, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, because yeah, yeah, yeah. it would be on your breath. But look, uh, you know, the, the limits that we have at the moment are working. They are sensible. Uh, you know, uh, they are sensible, they, and, and you know, they are within safe limits and it is the most common um, limit that we have at, at the moment it's the most you know, frequent one across the world so it is easy for people to, to get used to that one but really I think what the, the message from this is just that people need to be very aware of what they're doing the next morning if you don't if you, you if you haven't had enough sleep if you haven't um, you know you believe that you might be oh, mm. towards the edge just don't take the risk because there's nothing you can do there's not you know there's no shower or fry up or uh, you know anything yeah. else that will change it? It's it's just down to time to, to for your body to process the alcohol. I mean, it's not just drink, is it? Uh, I mean, it's a good thing that you can uh, measure people's alcohol levels uh, because uh, that can deter people from driving if there's a, a risk. But there's all sorts of risks, as you say, if you haven't had a, enough sleep or if you've got a really bad migraine or the flu or COVID or whatever the case may be, uh, that your decision making is impaired. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the sleep one is is, is particularly um, crucial as well because we've we've seen uh, anecdotal evidence that driving, you know, very very tired or, or overly fatigued is is almost the equivalent of driving over the limit of alcohol. So it is perilous to do that so you know that's why there are laws in place for people who drive trucks and buses etc that they can only drive a certain amount um, but the same applies to all of us if, if you know if we if we haven't had enough sleep um, it's it's not it's not a wise idea to get yourself into a, a ton or ton and a half vehicle and, and try and navigate Okay food for thought for everybody thanks Paddy Paddy Common thanks. of AA Ireland that's our programme for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM Good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.